trying to preserve whatever it is that we can we can get. One of the good ones I'm doing though is Rockfin. Let me just see mm. if that comes up. I haven't um, tried to, oh shoot, I have to keep that open. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so we are live. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Uh, Professor Kevin Barrett is here. Uh, Truth Jihad is his website. The book is Truth Jihad, My Epic Struggle Against the 9-11 Big Lie. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's good to be with you, Charles. So uh, before we get into the uh, the subjects of the of the day, I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit about your story and how you arrived at where you are in terms of um, writing a book like that, your point of view, what, you know, how it is you, you became Muslim. Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of a long, uh, convoluted story, but basically I came from a family of lapsed Unitarians, and that's as mm -hmm. lapsed as it gets. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we, they, we didn't even go to church to sing Kumbaya. And Can I just interject briefly here? Because I did, when I was on conventional radio, I used to do a segment on religions, and I'd have various people from all religions join me. And I had someone from the Unitarian Church join me, and I asked her, I said, could you give me a thumbnail sketch on what it is that the Unitarians believe in? Are there any basic principles? And she said to me, funny you should mention that. We have a convention next month. We're going to be figuring that out. Well, I think they figured it out and they said, we don't have any principles. Yeah. Uh, they actually have a, an atheist minister now in Madison, Wisconsin, where I, I think I went to church maybe two or three times at the Frank Lloyd Wright Design Church in Madison when I was a kid. Yeah. So anyway, I grew up in a very um, you know materialistic, uh, secular family, and I had spiritual experiences as a teenager, knew there was a lot more to life than what the materialist paradigm was presenting. And of course, read widely, uh, looked into Buddhism as well as all sorts of other things when I was young. And then uh, I, I never really got monotheism. Uh, that is, you know, I, when my parents sent me to go to church with a Catholic next door neighbor to see what the Catholics do, didn't make any sense to me at all. The notion mm -hmm. of this patriarchal God and, you know, Jesus is his son who, uh, you know, died as redemption for everybody else's sins. This whole story didn't make any sense to me. So, uh, but, but at the same time, I understood the spirits, you know, th there's a real spiritual dimension to life. And so I looked into Buddhism, which made a fair bit of sense. And then uh, in 1990, I think it was, or 89 rather, I, through the grace of God, uh, what many would call a coincidence of synchronicity, I happened to walk into a class taught by Dr. Jacob Needleman. Now, Dr. Needleman is a Jewish guy and he was teaching a class on Kabbalah. And yet, when I sat in this class, thinking that it was going to be a teaching of English composition class on my career track, uh, and it wasn't, it was the wrong classroom. I mm -hmm. was so entranced that I stayed. And Dr. Needleman assigned a whole bunch of books by traditionalists. It turns out that he's not really a Kabbalist per se. Uh, he's um, more of a sort of a freelance monotheistic traditionalist. And he assigned books by people like Rene Guénon, Fritzoff Schuon and other founders of the traditional school, most of whom converted to Islam, uh, saying that it was the last authentic divine revelation, the last mm -hmm. fully preserved, best preserved one. And that kind of blew my mind because I had always thought that it was the most primitive and barbaric. And I kind of thought all the monotheisms were kind of primitive and barbaric. But so that opened my pride, opened my mind a little bit. 
And then I ran into a bunch of interesting Sufi literature and then the woman who had become my wife uh, in, uh, when was that, 1993. And mm -hmm. they, uh, I had a kind of a, I, a revelation that the stuff I learned in Needleman's class that had reopened me to the possibility of God was correct. And so I had a coming to God moment and did it through Islam, which it seemed based on what I was hearing at that point to be both the, not only the best preserved uh, revelation from God, but also the one that was most rationally defensible. Um, okay. And the more I looked into it, the more I was convinced that that was the case. It also so happened to have a very powerful mystical tradition and Sufism is a big part of that. Right. And I very much related to that as well. So that's how I came to Islam. I said, I better go study Arabic and Islamic studies to figure out what the heck I got myself into. So mm -hmm. I went back to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison right. and uh, spent years mastering Arabic and studying uh, comparative religion and mostly Islam in the context of North Africa and Sufism. And I'd probably still be teaching that stuff today, except 9-11 happened. And in late 2003, I heard David Ray Griffin, one of my great heroes, uh, he's a brilliant scholar, a, not a, so much a theologian as a guy who studies reality and tries to figure mm -hmm. out scientific questions, right? So he looked into 9-11 and I, I heard he was finding crazy things like the buildings were blown up and so on. So I looked into that, found it was not just true, but obviously true. And one, and this flashed back to when I was a young man, you know, a young kid really in, in the early 70s and I discovered the problem with the JFK assassination which warped me for life and made me an enemy of convention in the state and you so this, a lot of people yeah right <laughs> so 9-11 was another JFK thing for me and it blew my mind and here I am in Islamic studies everybody knows every, every Muslim in Madison Wisconsin that I knew said the second 9-11 happened they knew it was completely bogus there's no way that there's this guy bin Laden who pulled this off it's ridiculous and I said well let's wait and see well two years later I looked into it and I saw they were right. And so I, I was very angry and upset again. And I was flashed back to my JFK days uh, and said, you know, am I going to spend six or seven years getting tenure and just let this thing go? Hell no. So I started doing teach-ins on the University of Wisconsin campus, became locally notorious. I had the first three mainstream op-eds, pro 9-11 truth op-eds published in mainstream, a mainstream newspaper in Madison, the Capital Times and got involved in 9-11 in Truth, brought Dr. Griffin to speak in Madison in 2005. I became kind of a figure in the 9-11 Truth movement. And then in 2006, when the opposition research guys decided to try to shut down 9-11 Truth, they couldn't ignore it anymore, uh, they came after me. And so I was basically beat up in mainstream media as that evil 9-11 Truth professor who's corrupting the youth of Athens. Now, that made me permanently unemployable in the American Academy. I lost a tenure track job as well as any other yeah. possibility of employment. And so since then, I've just been a freelance troublemaker and alternative media type guy like you. Exactly. And I, I think that uh, people generally are coming around to viewing 9-11 as, as having more to it than what was we were conventionally fed by the media. And in my own experience, when I ran for Congress, in 2004 against Barney Frank, I discovered that he had authored this amendment to the Immigration and Nationality Act, which basically forbid the United States from denying visas to people who were involved in terrorist activities. And it also had the effect of preventing all of our various 
so-called national security agencies from uh, talking to each other and exchanging information, which you know led me to think that there's something bigger going on here. There was some kind of an establishment agenda. There was something, you know, to use a word that became popular in conspiracy theories against President Trump. There was some kind of collusion. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But uh, bringing things up, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but and I don't know what it is, and I'm not claiming to know. But there's, you know, honest people out are, are looking into it. Um, bringing things up to the present. I just published my latest book, which is the uh, the anti-Semitic imagination, and um, in that book I discovered, and I also discovered in a previous book I wrote, that there is a peaceful element, or at least a an element within Islam, as expressed by the Mufti of Rome, Palasi, who says that Islamic texts, including the Quran and the Hadith, if they recognize the quote people of the book, which is the Islamic word for the Jews, as being sovereign in that tiny little swath of beachfront known as Israel, and that there's a religious side to that, in that uh, such sovereignty will result in the, uh, I mean, I suppose it's similar to Christianity, in that the coming of the Mahdi, or the coming of the um, the final uh, prophet, and, and the ushering in of a messianic era. And uh, his work has not been refuted by Islamic scholars. I don't think it's certainly the mainstream, but I'm wondering what you think of that and uh, and where you lie, where you come down on that question. Well, uh, you and I actually, Charles, are on totally polar opposite sides of that question, even though um, maybe our philosophical framework isn't so different. That is, uh, your ideas about kind of the core values of Judaism, uh, that um, I respect those same values as the core values of Islam and indeed all monotheism. And like other Muslims, I view uh, the revelations from God through all of the prophets, uh, Moses and Jesus, uh, Muhammad, all of them, uh, maybe Buddha too, I, I don't know, uh, may, you know, God's peace upon all of them, uh, that sure. those are the, are the core values. So I actually, I feel like I kind of share a lot of your core values and your overall outlook on things. And yet, when it comes to this issue of Zionism, I find myself um, in the exact opposite side of things. I, I couldn't come up with somebody who more exemplifies what I would see, say is the absolutely, just utterly wrong position on Zionism uh, as, as you have. Uh, my view of it, and you know, I'm, I realize this is probably going to sound shocking or strange to you, but I, I agree with Sheikh Imran Hossein's interpretation of eschatology, more or less, uh, with some differences of nuance. And essentially, as, as I see it, Charles, um, Zionism is Antichrist or Dajjal. Uh, it's a false messiah. I, I think that it, it began with Shabtai's V and Jacob Frank, who you agree, I think, are uh, false messiahs and prophets. Indeed, I do. Right. And I agree with the Naturae Carta people from the Jewish viewpoint that you know, God is asking all of us to be the best people that we can and to offer complete and perfect justice to everybody, regardless of their nominal faith or ethnicity or religious affiliation or what have you. And I think Zionism is an expression of a pernicious and toxic Jewish supremacism that has been the sh um, part of the shadow side of the Jewish faith. And from a, a Muslim perspective, we would say that emerges in part because of 
what we see as, as inaccuracies in the Torah and in, in that led, leading to uh, abominations in the Talmud. And there, I think that the notion of a chosen people uh, is, uh, well, it's, it's problematic. And of course it can be interpreted in a way that encourages good behavior, which is your interpretation. And I honor that, but it's also lends itself to interpretations that are basically create a kind of supremacism that denies the rights of others and denies the viewpoints of others. And I think your book's approach to Zionism horrifically it denies the viewpoint and the rights and the human dignity of others, that is non-Zionist Jews, uh, especially Palestinians who are the victims of genocide. And they didn't start being the victims of genocide on October 7th. They've been victims of genocide nonstop ever since the earliest Zionists were mostly atheists and Satanists uh, showed up in Palestine with a supremacist attitude rather than being immigrants who were going to work with the local people and help them and be part of their community. These people were supremacists who said it's going to be a Jewish state. Jews are going to rule. Jews mm -hmm. are the, the chosen people here. And we're ultimately, we're going to have to expel these native Palestinians. And all the, the founders of Zionism knew they were going to have to commit genocide. That is expel, destroy the local Palestinian community. Now that's unacceptable, Charles. And I'll tell you mm -hmm. one of the reasons why, not only because it requires genocide against the indigenous Palestinians, but also because that, that holy land is holy to all of us. It's holy to Jews, it's holy to Christians, and it's holy to Muslims. Whoever has custody over that land should not create, it has to administer with perfect justice to all faiths, no special dispensations for any faith. And when a group of, my, you know, the, the monotheists basically today consist of about 15 million Jews, about 2 billion Muslims, and going on 3 billion or so Christians. So there are 5 billion monotheists today who honor Abraham and all of those prophets uh, who are not Jewish. And there are 15 million on earth today who are Jewish. All of those 5 billion plus people have equal rights to being equal citizens in every possible sense in that holy land. And for one group, just like if I said, it should be a Muslim state in which only Muslims are allowed to emigrate there, only Muslims are allowed to have the best property, Muslims are going to put up checkpoints, so all the non-Muslims basically have to go through apartheid checkpoints to go to the store every day. Uh, Muslims are going to be shooting non-Muslim children for sport, which happens on a regular basis in Israel as the Israeli Defense Forces literally murder Palestinian children for sport on a constant basis and never face any constant. If the Muslims acted like this against the Jews and the Christians in that Holy Land, it would be an abomination. So the fact that this grotesquely uh, deluded and egotistical and egocentric and arguably tribally psychopathic group of 15 million of the world's 5 billion monotheists has seen fit to invade the Holy Land and commit genocide against the people who live there and erect a supremacist apartheid genocidal entity there and call it some kind of special uh, you know, almost quasi-messianic entity and bow down and worship this genocidal entity as a sacred, as a, as a golden calf, uh, that's Antichrist, that's Dajjal, that's the false prophet, that's another Shabtai Zvi. And, you know, I, so I think that you've made a terrible mistake. I think you're a good man. I think your basic values are good. But I think you made a horrific mistake by grossly misinterpreting Israel, re, uh, the hist reading the history from a very, very 
biased viewpoint, an utterly one-sided viewpoint that denies the story of the other, denies the humanity of the other, denies the facts that we all should be agreeing on, uh, and in, in, instead replaces it with a, with big lies and, and propaganda that are completely false about the history of what's happened there. So I, I think you're utterly and completely on the wrong side of this question of Palestine and Zionism. And I think that Imran Hussein is the, and, and, and the fact is in the Muslim world, Charles, it, you know, there's universal support for Hamas. We all know that Hamas did not commit atrocities on, on October 7th. I've looked into all of the links, the New York Times links, all of the links to these supposed atrocities. There's not one single documented uh, video documented atrocity. And every one of those Hamas fighters filmed everything they did. They all had GoPro camps. And Israel ended up with, with tens of thousands of hours of footage from the GoPro camps of these Hamas fighters. And all they can find to try to show us a few atrocities are utterly unconvincing. Whereas we have absolutely convincing evidence that virtually all of the Israeli civilians who died on October 7th were murdered by the Israeli defense forces themselves who invoked the Hannibal Doctrine. They actually literally invoked mass Hannibal, uh, which means the mass murder of not only the hostage takers, but the hostages too, to prevent the political liability of hostages. They came in with helicopter gunships and mowed down everybody in, uh, in the kibbutz. Uh, they mowed down that row of cars fleeing, fleeing the music festival just like the Americans did in Iraq in the Gulf War One, That's where almost all those deaths came from. It was the Israeli military that killed all those people, Charles, and grotesque and insane big lies that came were inst instantly. I mean, when they started talking about beheaded babies and babies roasted in ovens, didn't you realize that was the devil spewing diabolical, demonic propaganda to try to spur a genocide. And now we've seen this genocide, a hundred innocent civilians, mostly women and children, the vast majority women and children being murdered every day by Israeli bombs that bring their homes and apartment buildings and, and mosques and churches and hospitals, especially hospitals, bring that down on their heads and they die slowly crushed beneath the rubble. And that's the result and that, and all of this other suffering that's result here is the result of people embracing this demonic, satanic, antichrist, false narrative that you are promoting. And so I could not possibly disagree with your position on Zionism more strongly. Well, I mean, there's a lot here to, as they say, unpack. And we certainly have irreconcilable differences, both between Judaism and Islam. And in a way, Judaism and Christianity also have irreconcilable differences. And I accept that. You know, we have, that's why we have different religions. As far as um, Zionism is, is concerned, it's, it's every bit a part of, of, uh, of Judaism. And um, it's, it's throughout the, the, the Torah, throughout the five books of Moses and the Talmud and the Tanakh. And I think that the aspirations of Zionism are very much like what King Faisal Ibn Hussein said, modest and proper. It's a tiny piece of land that for whatever reason, which I don't understand because I'm not a theologian, I don't think none of us know why, but according to my Torah, the Lord God, King of the universe, told Abram to go up and take possession of that miserable little piece of land. And it is an integral part of Judaism. And in my book, I go into every century of Zionism as a movement to do just that, to establish a, a commonwealth in that tiny piece of area. As far as the issue of the chosen people, 
it's grossly misinterpreted both by by many people, but Christians and Muslims, and even by most Jews. It doesn't call for supremacy. It doesn't call for the rule of any of the world, as a lot of the Jewish conspiracies say. It calls for the Jewish, the uh, the elect, the uh, the children of Israel at the foot of Sinai, to serve God, not to rule man, to serve God by taking on an extra layer of observance, of, of ritual, of uh, moral and ethical precepts as a way to witness to God. And as such, if they're successful, which mostly they've not been, but if they are, then they serve as a light unto the rest of the nations of the world so that the entire world can become closer to God because God is real. So it's a spiritual concept. It has been misinterpreted. You find Jews who have misinterpreted it, and, and I would call those Jews communists. You know, they believe in a world order where you literally have, they're somehow chosen to rule over other people and to create a one world government. Those are the people who are probably behind 9-11. I mean, those are the people who are behind a lot of the conspiracies that have cropped up in every generation. And I would trace it back to the Garden of Eden when, uh, you know, the serpent uh, tempted Eve to be like God, to know God, to overthrow God in heaven and to uh, basically have a rule of the world by uh, a clique of, of imperfect men. And, uh, you know, we're not gods, we're men, we're, we're imperfect, we're images of God. Yeah, so, I agree there's a, so, so there's a misinterpretation of the concept of chosen people, and the Jews who misinterpret this are just as bad as Christians and frankly, Muslims, well, not so much Muslims, but I think I look at it more as an Anglo-American establishment that feels that they have some kind of a enlightened privilege to rule the rest of the world and to do so clandestinely. It's a topic that I've gotten into at length in, in, in other books. And it's not a Jewish thing. It's a rejection of Judaism. It's a rejection of this idea that we are to take on this layer and serve God not rule over men. Now, as far as Israel goes, you and I both have very strong biases on this subject, and we draw our information from sources that have very strong biases on the subject, and I recognize that because I do see this as quite differently. I don't think that the Jews are committing genocide. If they wanted to commit genocide, they could have dropped a big, big fat bomb on Gaza. Instead, they're going in and risking the lives of their young men and women to try to find the Hamas enemy and stop them so that they can stop firing thousands of missiles into Israel and stop building terror tunnels so they can get into Israel and floating gas balloons so they can burn Israeli fields. Israel is their and land. Finally, excuse me. And finally show up with hang gliders with machine guns to try to kill as many Israelis as possible, Jew and non-Jew, I may add. And also in Israel, about 20% of the population is not Jewish, and they're full citizens of Israel. It's not perfect, but it's really something that I would compare to other countries, particularly Islamic countries, where you don't have that. Now, you want to talk about supremacy. Islam has a side to it that does seek world supremacy. I don't think there's any denying that. Yes, is there is. Good? I deny it. Your, well, your, book is, about, your book is ridiculous on that topic. It's ludicrous. What about, what about jihad? Your interpretation of jihad may be a Western interpretation, but yeah. I don't think it's the interpretation, excuse me, of people who, not just 
it were involved in 9-11, but blew up uh, the uh, subway system in, in London and blew up the train no. station. Israel did both of those. Israel did 9-11. Israel did uh, So Israel did all of it. I don't yes, think so. Yes, I, yes they I did. don't think so. I wrote books. I want to blame Israel. Look, you want to blame Israel for all of the Islamic instances around the world. I, I really, you know, I don't see it. You know, you'd have to show some kind of a, a proof no, of that. I'll, I'll, I'll send I you my brief essay on it. And, and by the way, I do think that Israel has been involved in this sort of internationalist uh, establishment, if you will, this Anglo-American establishment, because they 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 feel they have to be, because they need to preserve their sovereignty, and because they are confronting an enemy that seeks to wipe them out. And I don't think that the international establishment particularly likes Israel. I think they'd rather it didn't exist. But the Israelis do know how to play that kind of game, and they do it. But the motivation for doing it, unlike, in a way, this international, the, the Council on Foreign Relations crowd or, or some of these other people, is not to rule the world. It is to protect the sovereignty of the state of Israel and the lives and the property of the Jewish and non-Jewish citizens of Israel. So, you know, it's there, and they certainly have done some rather unsavory things. I don't deny that, and I don't excuse it. But it is in the interest, as mistakenly as they've been, in trying to preserve Israel's position as a sovereign state in that region. And as I started, I think that uh, Faisal's contention when he signed the Faisal-Weizmann Accord in January of 1917 was that his hope, and I hope that the Arab world wakes up to this, was that the, the sovereign Jewish state would live peaceably alongside all of the emerging sovereign Arab states, and that together they would emerge as sovereign nations with technology, with democracy, with peace, with, with all the institutions that would lead to freedom. He was very farsighted, as were a lot of other Arab leaders at that time. And I think that today on the Arab street, there is a sort of a move, move away from the shiny object, which is the, the fact that these countries are oppressive and are, are, are supremacist in their corrupt dictatorships, whether it be with a royal family or whether it be a Ba'ath socialist regime, like formerly of Saddam Hussein, and that people might wake up and they might take a look at Israel and say, we should have that kind of society here. We should have a nation that is dynamic and that is organic as a society that actually fosters institutions of freedom. We don't have to, the fact that we're focusing on trying to wipe out Israel and be at war with Israel, if we paid that much attention to, our, you know, to, to, to cleaning our own house, we could have powerful nations. These are oil rich, resource rich Arab nations that stretch all the way from the Gulf, from the point, the, the Atlantic coast, right up to the Tigris and the Euphrates. These are vast countries that have enormous potential. You know, instead of focusing on wiping out Israel, they should have the vision of Faisal when he signed that accord. Emerge together as sovereign, independent nations that take their place in the world and that serve the people of their, their citizens and that where power comes from the citizen, not from these oligarchs. Well, I, you know, it's hard to even really know where to start with, with that. Um, I guess first, I, uh, I'll explain the notion of jihad. It's, okay. Jihad, I, look, I, I 
studied Arabic and I graduated from an Islamic studies program or rather, you know, did Islamic studies in a secular university and earned a PhD and uh, have lived among Muslims quite a bit. I'm currently living in Morocco. Mm -hmm. So jihad, I'll tell you, is, is a word that means effort or striving. And the greater jihad is the jihad to become a better person, effort or struggle to be a better person. And the lesser jihad is defending the community. And that can be through verbal jihad or truth jihad, which is what I do, or it can be through um, armed struggle if necessary. And it's cl absolutely clear in the Quran, which, by the way, I've read, I think, 70 or 80 times uh, all the way through aloud in Arabic. Uh, so I know, you know, I, 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 I didn't memorize it. I started too late in life to be good at memorizing. But I can tell you that it's absolutely clear that all of these war verses in the Quran uh, are urging on very strong uh, defensive armed struggle. And when uh, even the very strongest of these incitements to armed struggle are immediately followed with, and when they, when they stop, you stop. If they stop, you stop. So there's a proportionality well, there. I mean, it's clearly, it's, it's, it's clearly defensive. It's and this, and when, when you said, no, don't, I, you don't let me interrupt you. So okay. I'm not gonna okay. let you interrupt me. Uh, the uh, Muslim, there, there's nothing about conquering the world. And in your book, you give us this, um, you know, this kindergarten style anti-Islam propaganda stuff that's been around for, you know, a couple of centuries. Westerners came up with this bizarre idea that there's sort of two Qurans, right? The Medina and the Mecca Quran. The, and the, the second one, the, Me the Medinan Quran, is somehow all about a world, you know, it's, it's, a very, it's much more aggressive. Well, those verses were revealed at a time when the Muslims were fighting for their lives. Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, was almost assassinated and he had to flee Mecca to Medina. And it was clear that the Meccan oligarchs, uh, very unjust people, uh, idol worshippers, sacrificers, and uh, people of very, very bad morals, were going to destroy the prophet and his followers. And so it was a fight to the death, basically, to see whether this new community and its revelation from God, and it's the last revelation, the same kind of revelation as the Torah and the Injil uh, or the Gospels, but it's the one that's been accurately preserved because God intended it such. And so in order to protect and defend that revelation and that community, the Muslims in Medina were de facto at war, a defensive war to, to survive. And all of those revelations are in that context. And yet they all, uh, they insist on defense. They say God, it's Quran says, God does not love aggressors. And that, that is absolutely clear. And then secondly, this notion of taking over the world and converting everybody to Islam is ludicrous. Everyone admits that virtually every Islamic state or polity in all of history has uh, not tried to force convert people. They, I never they said they did. Okay, okay, good. What okay, I said great. was that they take demi status. In other words, it's uh, they're they're protected Islamic... and they're given they're given tax exemptions here, but tax liabilities there. And if the ruler in the Islamic polity is not just and makes it better to be a Muslim than a non-Muslim tax-wise, yeah, some people convert for that reason. In any case, Islam, unlike Christianity, has protected uh, other faiths. And in general, in well, Muslim societies, Jew, yeah, Jews and Christians uh, thrived in Muslim societies. On the average, the I Jewish and Christian thrive. communities were economically well, considerably better off than the Muslim communities in virtually every Muslim polity that's ever existed. So it's a, Islam is a religion well, 
that embraces and protects and respects other faiths. And that's what it did during, uh, basically, uh, Islam has administered the Holy Land ever since Islam existed, with a couple of very brief and bloody crusader interludes when blood-crazed crusaders came to the Holy Land and just drenched it in blood, killed everybody, men, women, and children. That's what the Zionists are doing today. The Zionists are just the latest blood-drenching crusaders inspired by by the shaitan, al-Babillah. Now, going back to jihad, the purpose of jihad in the sense of the lesser jihad, that is jihad uh, in military struggle for defense of the community, that uh, that form of jihad is based on justice. And again, this is where Islam fixes and, re- and, and gets straight these revelations that came before. The Torah paints a picture of a God who is patently unjust in so many respects. I won't go on and bore it. We can debate that some other time, but you know, just very, very, very briefly, the story of Job uh, doesn't, you know, God didn't treat Job too well. And there's a whole, you know, it's easy to take the anti-God side based on what you see of Job in the Torah. Uh, uh, the um, Israel or Jacob, Israel, Jacob got his name Israel by uh, being a heel. That's what Jacob means is heel. And he got his name Israel by being a heel. He was the heel in the wrestling match. He stole the birthright of his brother. Uh, you know, that's grossly, and I could go on and on with these examples of immorality in the Torah. Uh, the Quran, it makes it retells these stories and makes everything absolutely clear that we live in a just universe uh, presided over by a just God. This is the same God as the God of philosophy. Anybody who comes at the idea of one God through philosophy gets to the, basically the same God that we have, in, the same view of God that we have in Islam. Whereas Judaism gives us a psycho- psychopathic patriarch named Yahweh who has some kind of chosen people. He prefers some sons to others and lets them be swindlers and protect and prefers his swindler son, Israel, to his honest brother, Esau. Uh, what kind of God is this? this is ridiculous. But Christianity then gives us this grotesquely unjust God who insists on everybody's sins, uh, are they get they get out of their sins because of some vicarious atonement or sacrifice? That's ridiculous. Uh, Islam gives us a clear; it, it clarifies these revelations, which meant much of them are correct, and shows us that God is absolutely just. So, jihad, the struggle, the just defensive military struggle, is all about justice. Now, Charles, I can't conceive of how you can't see that a horrific injustice has been perpetrated on the Palestinians by the invasion of Zionist terrorists who are mostly atheists and a few Satanists. And there weren't any real Jews or hardly any real Jews were Zionists until after the Holocaust, when the Holocaust became the new religion instead of Judaism. Horrific injustice. All Muslims are required to stand up for justice. And when somebody in the Islamic Ummah, which is the Islamic nation, is suffering an injustice, uh, that's kind of our family. And so that's why mm-hmm. today the entire Islamic Ummah, essentially, we all uh, have decided that Israel now has to go. Now, what, what you're saying about, you know, we should have accepted Israel and seen the good sides of Israel, that might have worked, mm, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe, you know, 20 years ago. I don't think five or 10 years ago, because, you know, the Zionists have become so insane under this ultra-extremist, mega-genocidal government of psychotic settlers around Netanyahu. Uh, But since October 7th and the response to October 7th, which has been the slaughter of over 30,000 innocent Palestinian women and children, uh, no military necessity. The the only reason that this is being done, it has nothing to do with Hamas. It, it It creates better terrain for Hamas to fight from. All it does is slaughter the Gazans. They've destroyed 70, 80% of the buildings 
And the purpose is to commit genocide, to destroy Gaza and to try to force the Gazan people out of Gaza to kill as many as they need to and to get all the rest to leave. That's the only strategy that's at work here. And that's just one example of the horrific atrocities that have been a constant of the Zionist attack on Palestine and the people of Palestine ever since they got there. And if you can't see this extreme level of injustice, which has required every Muslim on earth to devote themselves to liberating Palestine, and today more than ever, but if you go canvas people here in Morocco, uh, actually I'm in Spain right now, but over across the Med in Morocco where I live, um, everybody is basically of one mind now, which is this genocidal response to the totally justified October 7th Alexis Storm operation means Israel is finished. And it's not just the 2 billion Muslims that have decided this, that Israel's gone now, it, whatever it takes. I don't care if it takes return to, not, no return to sender WMDs, uh, that threat, I don't, you know, anything. Any, anything would be better than allowing these, these demonic entities to continue to do what they're doing. So that has essentially been the decision, not only the Islamic Ummah, but the entire global South too. And so as Israel goes on trial for genocide, the first genocide in the history of the world, where the slaughter of, of tens of thousands of innocent women and children has been televised every night. And we're watching this every night. We're watching babies dying under rubble. Uh, we turn on our screens, our Al Jazeera, we look at our news feeds. This is all we see. And the, the majority of the world now has they're finished with it. There's no more Israel. Charles, you're, you need to find a new cause because Israel is done. The world has seen what the demonic nature of this entity and the world is not going to allow it to continue to exist in present form. It needs to become an, a state for all its people. And if it did, the Jews who are there would be the natural leaders of it. And they could make it a place that exemplified the best Jewish values, the ones that you, you embrace. That could happen, but it can't be Israel as exists today. It can't be the Jewish state. It's going to have to become Israel-Palestine or something like that. And it's going to have to eliminate all of the privileges that, you know, the, Jew the Jewish supremacist privileges that the Jews in Israel currently have. It's going to have to become a state that treats everybody equally. And absolutely all of the Palestinian ethnic cleansing victims who were murdered and chased out of Palestine are going to have to have the right to return and be members of that nation. And when that happens, that's when that country will be embraced by the Muslim world and the global South. Well, well first of all, Kevin, um, you know, technically you're right about jihad in terms of um, the more peaceful understanding of it, but I think you're giving a bit of a rosy view of um, the fact that other Muslim movements and both historically and today do view jihad as bloody conquest. That's what led the uh, Seljuk Turks to sack Constantinople. That's what led uh, Muslims this past Christmas to slaughter 200 Christians in Nigeria while they were in church. I don't think they were committing aggression against Muslims when they were in their church. Um, and this is a history that you seem to want to kind of, you know, slosh over, you know, give it like a rosy look. And that G, that that Jimmy status is some kind of a benevolent thing, when in fact it was probably a, more, a lot more akin to the way black people were treated in the American South. Black people were richer the, uh, than the white rights people. Movement. No, the Jimmies are in richer cases, than the Muslims. In, in some cases, but it all depended on 
No, it depended on who was in charge at any given time. And it was a very arbitrary thing. I mean, you, you can't say that about the Armenians who suffered a genocide in uh, in Turkey. Absolutely, and, the and Armenians were vast, much richer than the Muslims. Yeah, while they, they were, were alive. The point I'm making here is that, that those statuses can be very arbitrary if you have an Islamic government in control. And I'm not suggesting here, by the way, that it's not possible for peaceful Islamic governments. I'd point to the Abraham Accords, uh, peace with Israel and uh, many states. No one ever thought that ever could be possible, but it was made possible, I think, partially by the work and leadership of President Donald Trump. So it can happen and there is a peaceful side, but there's also the warlike side that seeks to dominate the non-Islamic neighbors, whether it be Israel or whether it be Christian nations or whether it be the Philippines, or whether it be uh, you know, people in, in other parts of the world, India. And that if that were the case, then peaceful Muslim nations who want to conduct their religion in peace and, and embrace all of the values that you seem to embrace, I'm all for that. I mean, we all are, let them be peaceful. But if they want to go on the field of battle against the non-Muslim world, as we can look at, and as I mentioned in my book, was documented by Harvard professor Samuel Huntington, um, then they have to be met on the field of battle. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that the West is any better. The West, after all, gave birth to both communism and Nazism, which were far more aggressive movements in terms of world conquest and in terms of pushing their borders. Can they briefly so, respond to Huntington? Uh, yeah. You can, but let me just say one more thing here. The um, the October 6th attack on Israel, which did happen, and I know people who uh, know people who were killed. Every Israeli knows people who were killed that day. And that, yeah, maybe the Israeli army might have had an incident where they might have killed people in the heat of war, but that is really exaggerated. The point I'm making is that the response to that has been Israel coming together, putting aside their differences, and standing up for their rights as a sovereign people. And that includes non-Jewish Israelis, I may add. And that the, the society is not going to be taken down. They're as dynamic and as unified and as strong as ever. And they're finding alliances around the world that are much more generic. Look, the American government does not like Israel, never did. The American government tried to stop Truman from recognizing Israel. Why should he? That's true. After all, and then I got into this. I mean, the Arabs have all the oil. They've got the money. They've got the population. You know, the Jews have this little strip of land. But Truman did it anyways. And he did it because he got he $2 million dollars in cash in his suitcase. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, maybe he got a bribe. Fine. But the point is that he was expressing the opinion and the treason. will of treason. Treason, please. He was expressing the opinion and the will of the vast majority of the American people, both liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican, the American people respect Israel's sovereignty. And the reason why the left, I mean, I'm not beginning to the Islamic side here. I would suggest the reason why the left despises Israel and why they've sided with Hamas in this country, at least the radical element, is two reasons. First of all, because Israel does represent capitalist ideas. It's not a purely capitalist country, no country is. But it represents entrepreneurialism. It represents independent thinking. You know, it represents innovation, and the left hates that. And secondly, it's Jewish, regardless of whether or not Israelis believe in God, 
you know, there, there obviously is a pretty significant core that does. The Israelis also tend to be atheistic, just like Christians. But the point is that it is a Jewish state and Judaism is a religion that advocates belief in God. And the left despises that. They want to overthrow God. They want to replace God with a rule by man. Now, again, I think that this should resonate with Islamic people who also believe in the same God. You know, and, and that, you know, you mentioned, by the way, the Crusades. When the Crusades landed in Israel, the Jews and Arabs worked together to repel them. And both of them were slaughtered by the Crusades. That's so, right. I mean, the Jews have been there in every generation and in every century. And I document that in my book. Zionism didn't just suddenly pop out of nowhere. It's a movement that is, it's a generic movement that's existed in every century as Jews have tried to go back to the, the land that was basically seized from them by the Romans and reestablish their commonwealth. So it's not, it's, it's, a, it's not something that was invented because of the Balfour Declaration or something else. It's been a part of the Jewish firmament from day one. Anyway, uh, what about Hannah Huntington? Okay, there, yeah, there's a lot I could respond to here, but just beginning with Huntington, you cited Huntington's famous remark from the Clash of Civilizations that, quote yes. unquote, Islam has bloody borders. Now, the re what he didn't say is that the reason the borders of the Islamic world are bloody is that the non-Muslim countries on the other sides of those borders have been committing aggression against the Muslims for quite some time. Now, I'm not going to argue that Muslims have always been utterly innocent and non-aggressive. That's uh, my argument instead. Like I, I think your problem is, is that you have offered a very, very one-sided view in your book that is make, making it sound as if Muslim uh, governments or polities have been more military aggressive, militarily aggressive than non-Muslim ones. That's just not true. They no, have I don't, not. I don't think I said that. Okay. Did, well, you, well, you, the reader that. would come away from your book thinking that. The, certainly, the casual reader would. Right. And in 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 fact, the uh, the uh, Huntington's bloody borders refer to the fact that since well, the, as you know, Europe largely conquered the world during the past five hundred years. And these European countries went to the non-European countries and invaded them, occupied them, colonized them. Where I live in Morocco, it was uh, colonized by the French and the Algerians lost some by some estimates as many as a million people to drive them off and to regain their independence as a sovereign nation in which Muslims were just the people who lived there rather than essentially the slaves. Because when the French took over, they gave all the, the they classified people according to their religion and uh, Muslim was basically a badge of second class status, just like uh, non-Jews in today's Palestine. So uh, in any case, the, these borders are bloody because of, well, the border land of Algeria was bloody because the French invaded and colonized it in the 1830s. Uh, and Morocco, uh, they did the same thing 80 years later. The blo bloody borderlands along the southern rim of Russia are bloody because the Russians have been expanding, that is, militarily invading uh, and shedding blood uh, against the Muslim countries on the southern edge of, of Russia. Uh, and that process continued through the Soviet Union, and it's only mm -hmm. sort of starting to stabilize now. The same is true in, of course, Palestine. As I said, Palestine has been Islamically administered holy land in which the uh, administrators are enjoined by Quranic principles to try to apply perfect justice for Jews, Christians, and Muslims with no 
uh, regard to the person's faith, all the religions have been protected, and they have been pretty much by the Muslims in the Holy Land, as long as the Muslims were in charge there. Uh, and then that became more bloody borders. Why? It wasn't that the Muslims went and invaded Italy and, and stole Rome, which is the equivalent of, of coming to steal Jerusalem. No, the, the, the Europeans came and invaded uh, the Holy Land. What about Rome Africa? Yeah. yeah, same thing in Africa, right? In, in Africa, the European colonialists. No, I'm talking hey, about now. I mean, with Nigeria, with um, you know the bloody borders where you have Muslims going in and slaughtering. Well, no, that, those Muslim people. Yeah, but those those there there you can't. I don't think Hunt, Huntington wasn't thinking of Africa because there really aren't bloody borders. Yeah, I guess in in parts of West Africa, they're slightly bloody. I've heard borders. there are problems in Uganda yeah. too. I mean, and, uh, yeah, yeah, but but see those Ethiopia. Charles. Those, yeah, see, this is not what he's talking about. He, uh, he's talking about like nations invading and attacking other nations and things like that. What we, right. what you have in places like Nigeria are these tribal ethnic conflicts. And those tribal ethnic conflicts include that some of the tribes are Muslim, some mostly, or some tribes are Christian, some are both, like the Yorubas are both. And, and there's this ethnic tribal conflict going on. And then, yeah, sometimes the hotheads on one side or another will wave their religious flag, whether it's a Christian flag or a Muslim flag. And so, you know, it's just like in Northern Ireland where the British Protestants versus the Irish Catholics was the fight, but it was really an ethnic fight. And, you know, there's a, a joke uh, that one, uh, one of the guys like was trying to cross the border and they wouldn't let him as the Irish border back in the days of the, of the troubles. He yes. said, are, are, are you, are you, are you, uh, are you a Catholic or are you a Protestant? And the guy says, neither one, I'm an atheist. And, uh, and, and, and they said, uh, no, no, I, 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 I mean, you know, are, are you a Catholic atheist or are you a Protestant atheist? Yeah. And, yeah, and so it's right. an ethnicity. It's an eth ethnic fight. It's really not about religion. No, I, I get that. It's, yeah, it's, so that's what's happening in Africa. It is. Right. But, but um, in any case, the, I, the I bloody borders that... have always always been the non-Muslim country. In every case, find me a case of the Muslim countries invading and expanding into the non-Muslim land in the Charles past Martel. century. Charles Martel. No, no, in the past century. Stopped... Past century. All not, right. Not, Battle, not of, years Battle of Lepanto stopped uh, Ottoman aggression. No, that's Battle, Battle of Vienna. The last century. The last century. Well, because, I'll, t I'll answer that because after the Battle of Lepanto, which was probably the largest naval uh, affair in Huntington's history. Huntington's not talking about the, the well, Battle of Lepanto. Well, wait a minute. Let me finish my thought here. And also the stopping of the of the Muslim advance at the gates of Vienna by General Sobieski in the Huntington, Where's Huntington in this? Huntington's not in this. I'm in this. Well, we're the talking point about I'm Huntington. making here. Well, we're now moving on to something else. The point I'm making here. So you admit I'm right about about the bloody border. No, I'm simply responding to the idea of that the Islamic aggressions were checked by forces of, in this case, of Christian nations. I mean, and then of course, for whatever reason, the Ottoman Empire went into a gradual decline. I don't okay, think it was so that they just, just please to. explicitly admit that I'm right, that the bloody borders that Huntington referred to are bloody because the non-Muslims are no, attacking Muslims. you are partially Muslims. right. Yeah, there, okay. there was definitely two sides of that story. No, there's one side. There's one no, side. The non-Muslims are attacking the Muslims. There's one side. Yeah, but the Muslims are now resurging and starting to attack and, and reassert. Where? Where? All over the world. The Philippines. Where, 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 where are Muslim countries invading non-Muslim countries? Show me one place. The Philippines. The Mindanao Island, you have Muslims trying to attack non-Muslims. Um, uh, I think the Aceh province in, in, in Indonesia, 
India, the pa- the battle between uh, India and Pakistan. And right, Bangladesh. And, and guess who's the aggressor? Do you think Pakistan it's wants to take on. over? So, well, stop. Does, does Pakistan want to take over India and make it one Muslim country, or does India want to take over Pakistan and make it one Hindu country? Tell answer that. I think the, the I think that my understanding is that that's just a conflict between both sides. Wrong. India wants to take over Pakistan and make it reunite the subcontinent. Yes, they do. They're all, all, they've well, always. Yeah. The, the the point is that there is aggression, and I would point to uh, Ethiopia, Uganda, the the rim of Africa. Um, there's aggression with Islamic populations inside of Europe, and not not so much in the United States, thank God, because I think that American Muslims like American Jews, quite honestly, are Americanized. You know, we're, so, we're Protestantized, if you will. <laughs> are, are, there, are there bloody borders in Europe? I don't understand that. I, th- I think that there are situations where you have Islamic gangs in England uh, grooming, you know, rape gangs and that kind of thing has been talked about. So they're going to take over England? I ultimately, yeah. They've, it's, they've on the record as saying that England ultimately should become Islamic, yes. You've got uh, Islamic groups. Wait, wait, wait. The, the, rape, the, rape, the rape gangs, a criminal, a, a small-time Not criminal the syndicate. Not the rape gangs, but you've got Islamic leaders. It was just an Islamic imam who made these comments in England. Ultimately, England would have to be under Sharia law. You've got Islamic leaders in Germany who've made these kinds of comments and in Scandinavia. So, yeah, I mean, I think that you could argue. I don't think they're going to get away with it, but you know, you could argue that. Well, well Charles, not, wait, wait a minute. Like, they're I, not I, necessarily integrating into those societies. Uh, France has this sort of problem where you've got these, uh, you know, these zones and and whatnot. So, you know, yeah. Wait, 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 stop, around. stop. What zones? Um, what do they call them? I mean, we're, we're no, no go, no goes. Okay, stop, uh, Charles, Charles. Charles. Okay, okay. Yes, I, I will reiterate an offer I've made probably many dozen times over the past ten years, and my offer is: if you will cover my travel expenses and pay me as little as just a thousand dollars for my time, I will go to any no-go zone, and I will go there, and I will hang out, and smile with the locals, and I will get online and do a live broadcast from the no-go zone. So you look on Google Maps, you find me a no-go zone. Well, you're a Muslim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Huh? How do you? Well, think, they, they, I don't look like a Muslim. Could I, I go I, there with an Israeli flag and sing Hatikva? I mean, look. Well, that's that, 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 that's that's like that's like going into the synagogue waving a Nazi flag. I mean, of course, right. people well, are going to like that. First of all, I don't think it is. But the point is that look, the um, we, we could discuss technically Huntington. The man passed away. I mean, some of his work is outdated, but I would argue that there is this aggression and that it has been checked by world powers. And again, I will reiterate that I'm not pointing a finger at Islam on this one because the West has has produced much worse forms of international aggression. You you just failed to show any aggression being checked anywhere by any world powers. And this international establishment is much worse and much more dangerous. Anyway, Kevin, um, you know, I can't say it's been a ball, but (laughs) I'm glad to have had you on. And I think that we both got our viewpoints made clear and that's my goal here so okay yeah well i i found your book both interesting somewhat sympathetic and uh, there are things i can relate to but also that zionist part i just find absolutely maddening i think you're too smart a guy to fall for that propaganda charles well i think again the the aspirations of zionism it's an ethno-religious movement it expresses the ethnic and the religious ideals of judaism imperfectly but that's That's its goal 
and I think that hopefully the Arab world is going to wake up. Shooting children for sport is the 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 ethics of Judaism. Those those are that's atrocity propaganda, and those are exceptions. Chris Hedges watched it happen repeatedly. I'm sure. I don't doubt that it might have happened. Israel could very easily go in and just mow down those areas, but they do it risking Israeli military lives to try to find the people who are firing the missiles and, and, and putting up the terror tunnels without killing innocent people. So you're engaging. You know that's in, bullshit. No, I know that's the absolute truth. And I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying innocent people aren't killed. But you know they're still, intentionally trying to no, drive out the population by no. killing and destroying their all, their infrastructure. You know that, don't you? Well, driving out the population doesn't mean yeah. killing them. And you're right. There are Israelis. Thirty thousand. And by the way, there are Israelis right now in the government who are talking about annexing Gaza and 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 helping uh, the uh, Arab citizens leave. I understand helping that. life I mean, by blowing blowing them up and murdering no, them and, by, and destroying by, by, all of no, their by, hospitals, all of their houses with, with the tel- with the ter- terror tunnels underneath. Look, terror tunnels. I think I, no, so you yes, can defend your land. Tunnels. You build a tunnel, and why is that a terror They're tunnel? Defend, it, they didn't, Gaza didn't have to go to war again. Look, Israel handed Gaza in two thousand and five under Sharon, a hawk a hawk prime minister. They handed Gaza over to the Palestinian Authority. All the Jews were evacuated from Gaza who had lived there. Businesses were evacuated. They got money pouring in from all over the world, including the American taxpayer. The Gazans had the opportunity to turn Gaza into a very successful state. Gaza is not a poor place. I mean, you look at the buildings. They could have turned that into the French Riviera if they had wanted to, and Israel would have done more. At that time, we should we forget the fact that Israel... Uh, basically turned Jericho over to the Palestinian Authority, and they were prepared to do more. But unfortunately, you had Hamas take over Gaza, kill something like 200 Palestinian Arabs, and then launch 6,000 missiles into the state of Israel and then the terror tunnels. So that was a choice that was made. Israel committed terrorism the whole time. No, Uh, Israel, then why did they withdraw? Hamas won a free and fair election. Then why did they withdraw? Hamas had the the support of the majority, not only of Gazans, but probably Palestinians. Today it has the universal support of 2 billion Muslims. Why Uh, did they withdraw, uh, Kevin? Why why did did Israel Israel withdraw from Gaza? Yes. Why did Israel turn Gaza over to the Palestinian Authority and strip away Because Gaza is a... Gaza is a group of truly historic, uh, historically heroic people who have been resisting this genocide for generations. The majority of people in Gaza have the inalienable right to return to their homes in Israel, according to every United oh, Nations see. resolution so then, and international law. Yeah, Those people yeah. are refugees well, who are being penned up, penned up under atrocious conditions in the world's biggest con- open-air concentration camp. And the minute that Israel pulled out of Gaza, Israel began uh, finding ways to provoke Gaza. Not so. Not so. Israel's expectations. Went, and then when Hamas is, won the election, Israel's Israel and the United States, the United States did this too. The United States systematically went around trying to assassinate people, assassinate Hamas people, committing terrorism against Gaza. Israel has been committing nonstop terrorism against Gaza Not for so. 50 years. They, they wouldn't have and they never stopped. And Gaza they, they, has been trying to defend itself. And why did they itself. withdraw? And why did they pull out all the Jews? They withdrew because they, they, they thought they were paying too many costs, just like they're ultimately going to leave Palestine because they, they're paying too many costs. And the two billion no, they, people they, in, they, in the Islamic world have the ability to raise the cost of this 
genocidal occupation of Palestine to the threatened. point that the well, it's 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 uh, unfortunately look, the necessary the, yeah, to get justice. The, the Israeli expectations when they withdrew from Gaza were very modest. They were simply that there would be a peaceful border, nothing more and nothing less, and that's not what happened. So you know now you have yeah, a situation. Peaceful concentration camp wall. They don't want anybody to escape from the concentration camp. It's not a concentration camp. It is. It's one of the most desperate. Now it is. Once they started firing 6,000 missiles, but they had the opportunity of creating, and the world supported a Palestinian state. You should go back and read Chris Hedges' article, A Gaza Diary, in which he witnesses what Israel was doing to those people. Only after they fired 6,000 missiles. If they stopped the missiles, it wouldn't have happened. Anyways, they need more then, missiles. They need better missiles. Thank you. Then there'll be more war. And I think that they're not no, going to that, because because The only way we're going to finish this war is the way we finished the Crusades, which is by yeah. taking the, the demonically the inspired invaders of the Holy Land and thank kicking you. them I, out I rest my and sending them back to where they came from. The, oh, now, okay. e- even the police thank chief you. of Dubai is talking about the two-return solution, not just Palestine's, Palestinians returning to Palestine, but the Zionist invaders returning to the lands that they came from. Kevin, I rest my case. You've shown what Israel is confronting. Israel is willing to live in peace with their neighbors, and it's probably not going to happen, which is why I do think that it's reasonable that Israel uh, accept the Gazans as citizens who are willing to take a loyalty oath, and who, if they're not, then they should go. Anyway, will they, will they Kevin, have complete? Will they have equal rights once they're citizens? Absolutely equal rights with yes, all. Yes, they. Uh, in only one area, they don't, and that is that they're not allowed to serve in the military, except for the Druze and the Bedouins, and they're not allowed to be elected prime minister. But yeah, they are fully equal. Well, why, wait, what? Okay, why, why shouldn't they be allowed to serve in the military and, this, and get the lavish benefits that veterans of the IDF get? Why, well, why look, shouldn't that's they? A, that's a question that maybe there could be a, an alternative. Maybe they could do community service or something else. But there are problems with them being in the military because they would have to, if there was a war, they might have to fight Arabs that are re- they're related to. That's why. So maybe there's a solution to that in that Israel could give them uh, you know, some kind of a non-military service that would give them those benefits. I agree with yeah. you on that. Okay. Yeah, anyway, actually, Kevin. no, that, that's a great idea. If, if Israel were to grant citizenship to all Palestinians, that is all, all of the people who've been... Yes, this, I think that they should. If they take a loyalty oath to the to Israel, and if they mm-hmm. undergo maybe a one-year training program... You know, I, I think we, we might actually be in agreement on this. Yeah, we uh, might. And and if they and don't this, take the loyalty oath and they consider instead continue with jihad, then, then they have to go. Right, anyway, but, but, Kevin, listen, we should do it again sometime. Yeah, you want to promote? It. You want to? How? Where's your show? Do you want to promote it? Uh, sure. Yeah, the best place to go to find my work is my Substack, which is kevinbarrett.substack.com, and I also have a rubric at unstat.com, which is a great place for um, for conservatives like us to get together and compare our very different perspectives from within this sort of overall um, conservative and pro-religious orientation that we've been mm-hmm. expressing from different, very different sides of the, of the room. All right, Kevin, listen, thanks a lot and uh, be well. Okay, you too, Charles. Thanks. All right, thank you.